Um, I'm I'm sorry to have to say this, but you have bought into a lie. In fact, I've bought into the same lie that feels a kind, intelligent person. No, not that lie. The the Chilliwack is actually a thriving town worthy to host a men's retreat. No, not even that lie. The lie that we have bought into is that we, humankind, are always getting smarter and better. The lie that we have bought into is that we're moving steadily each year towards a utopian state of enlightenment. The lie that each year we humankind progress, that we become wiser, that we become more considerate, more understanding, more all-knowing, more self-sufficient. The lie that humanity is constantly evolving to a higher level. That lie. Now, I'm not saying that we haven't improved technically. We have faster cars. For goodness sake, we even have cars now that drive themselves. We have phones that do everything except make phone calls. I'm not saying that we don't have better medicine. Linda had an operation last week to plug a hole in her heart. Not only did they not open her up, she was awake whilst they were doing it. And she could see what was happening on the TV screen next to her. How crazy is that? Each year we may improve. In many areas. But the lie we've bought into is that these advancements make us better people. Make us more powerful. Make us, dare I say, more godlike. But here's the truth. The problem at the heart of mankind today is the same problem that has existed from the time of the garden and the apple. And the problem is that we believe that we are the captains of our own ship. That we know best that by following our own desires, by following our own gods, we will find the best way to live. And that, my dear friends, is a lie. But every now and again, that lie is exposed. Something happens that shakes our belief, our belief system, that questions our understanding of who we are. And what happens is we panic. We've seen such a thing happen over the last couple of months. A virus spreading around the world, first in one small little area of China, and now affecting many, many countries, leaving people prisoners in their own homes, 
prisoners on cruise ships, prisoners in hotels. Panic sets in, at resulting in borders being closed, pr- um, trains being sent back because two people on board have a fever. Shops running out of essentials, empty restaurants, closed churches, and people avoiding human contact. No one is shaking hands or hugging. I've had a cold for over three weeks now. I think it's a cold. (laughs) And I'm trying desperately not to cough in public. Because it's embarrassing. I'll tell you that I could clear a Starbucks coffee shop with just one coughing fit. (laughs) It's a time of great confusion. And it's at times like this that the lie is exposed. And we start to question our self-imposed godlike status. We question whether we are, in fact, masters of our own destiny. We question who or what shall we trust and follow in order to live life. What philosophy, what path, dare I say, what God with a small g should we follow to lead us into a good life, a free life, a healthy life, a life with fulfillment? But guess what? This ain't a modern question. (laughs) It's a question that the world has been asking down through history. And in fact, it was a question being asked in the 13th century BC by a man who thought he knew it all. A man who had it all. He had power. He had money. He could do whatever he wanted without being held accountable. He was the leader of the richest, most advanced nation in the world. He hated foreigners and immigrants, and his mantra was Egypt first. He was a man who had few scruples. Ginger hair and a fake tan. I just made that up. I'm sorry. (laughs) We've been looking. (laughs) Don't get political, Trevor. We, <laughs> I never learn. We have been looking at this man, not that man, but this man over the last few weeks as we've been going through the book of Exodus. The Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He's holding the he- Hebrew people in slavery. He's making their lives one of intense misery and suffering. But we're told that God hears the cry of his people and he begins working to set his people free. And so he chooses an 80-year-old reluctant shepherd to go with his brother to the king uh, and to say to the king, God Almighty, the great I am, says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no chance, clear off. Let's double the workload and the punishment. And so the people are fed up with Moses. And Moses is fed up with God. And God, in his mercy, says, don't worry. 
trust me. And then, as we saw last week, he starts to send plagues onto Egypt. And Jeff did a fabulous job last week, speak, unpacking this first plague, the Nile River turning into blood. If you weren't here last week, you didn't hear it, uh, go onto our website. You need, need to listen to that. Jeff showed us that Pharaoh's heart was hard. He wasn't seeking God. And therefore, he didn't see God working. He didn't surrender to him. He didn't respond to him by letting his people go. So as we'll see today, God is going to send another plague. In fact, we're going to look at two plagues. We may even get to the flies today. I'm not sure yet. But we'll see how far we go. So let's read about these uh, next couple of plagues. Uh, Exodus 8. Follow along with me. Uh, We're going to just read the first 19 uh, verses. So the first plague didn't work. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. So after the first plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they can worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up from uh, into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed and into your houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The, tr- the frogs will go up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up out of the land on Egypt. So Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray, please pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people. And I will let your people go. I promise, piggy, piggy promise. Uh, And I promise you can go and offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, well, look, I'll leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Okay, then. Moses replied, it will be as you say so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people, but they'll remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. And he wouldn't listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. So then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust on the ground, Gnats came upon men and animals. 
all the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. And when the magicians tried to produce gnats um, by their secret arts, they couldn't. And the gnats were on men and animals. And the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. This part of the Bible story is perhaps one of the best known, the plagues over Egypt. But here's a question I always had reading about this. I I used to think, why the plagues? And why these plagues? What is God doing here? You know, is he some, just some sort of sadistic deity? You know, just turning the screw on the king like some torture device. <laughs> Until he gives in. Well, no. There's so much more going on with each of these plagues. And we're going to talk about that today. But basically, God is using the plagues... To expose the lie. The lie that we as humankind have bought into. That we can live a fulfilled life by following our own desires. By following our own gods. And God exposes this lie by answering a question. It's a question that Pharaoh actually poses himself when Moses first goes to him. In chapter 5. He says this to Moses, Who's, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Essentially, it's the same question we ask today. Which, which voice, which God should I follow to give me the life that I was born to live? Which God will lead me to freedom? Who is it that the Lord... Who is this Lord that I should obey his voice, Pharaoh asked. And God says, great question. Let me show you. And throughout the ten plagues, you will see God repeating this phrase to Pharaoh through the lips of Moses. After every plague, he says, this is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I, am the Lord. He's saying, you want to know who I am? (laughs) I tell you what, stand back. Stand back and watch this, buddy boy. But why, why the plagues? Why these particular plagues? Well, it's important to understand that these plagues were not random. This wasn't God waking up in the morning and saying, okay, what plague today? Uh, I know, frogs. Let's do frogs today. I've just had enough of little frogs. We'll do the frogs. They're not random. You see, the Egyptian people had created and followed 114 gods each one of them representing an aspect of their life. And each plague that God sends is an attack on one of those gods. 
It was God saying to the people, okay, you've put your trust in this God. You follow this God in order to find the true life. Well, it's a lie. It's folly. It's false. Let me show you there's only one true God to trust and follow. Let me show you I am who I am. And it's the same message that we need to hear thousands of years later in our so-called more advanced and civilized society. Which God are you following? Which God leads to freedom? And I'm going to explore this as we go through the plagues. Before we get to the frogs and the gnats, let's just quickly go back to the first plague that Jeff looked at last week. The Nile turning to blood. You remember that? And it killed all the fish. Why that one? Well, one of the Egyptian gods of the Nile, there were a few, was the god Happy. Not that happy. This happy. Happy was the Egyptian god for the fullness of life. It was the god that was supposed to make life full of purpose and joy. So, and people would go and pray and sacrifice to happy. So when God turns the Nile from water to blood, he's saying to Egypt and to Pharaoh, this God is no God at all. He cannot give you the life you desire. It's a lie. Don't trust in this God. Don't try to find your happiness in happy. How ironic. You see, God in his mercy is now exposing this lie. Notice that he does it in his mercy. He's not just saying, na, 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 I'm God, you're not. No. He's saying, look, you're building your lives and your hopes on sand. Don't you see? You're looking in the wrong place. The reality is that the fullness of life you and I desire, the purpose you need, is found only in me. Through my son, Jesus Christ, Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and life to the full. So that's the first plague. But as we saw last week, Pharaoh doesn't see it. And he hardens his heart and says, no, you're staying here. So plague number two. Plague number two is a Frenchman's dream. All those frog's legs. Unfortunately, these frog's legs are not in a nice, creamy garlic sauce. They're attached to living, jumping frogs. If you look, you see see this in verses um, one to four. Basically, there's frogs everywhere. I want you to try to imagine this scene in Egypt. There were little kermits everywhere. I mean everywhere. They're in your bed. They're in your oven. They're in your food. You go for a date night with your wife to your favorite restaurant, and you're making eyes across the table. And ribbit, ribbit. There's frogs in the restaurant. There's frogs at the hockey game. Frogs on the ice. They don't know what the puck is. Which one's the puck? 
I'm hitting frogs. They go to church and there's frogs everywhere. Chaos. Why frogs? They're right, they're quite nice, quite cute. Well, it's an attack on another Egyptian god. The Egyptian goddess Heket. Let me show you a picture of Heket. There she is. Yes, she had a frog's face. Heket was another Nile god, but this one was tied to fertility. So women in particular prayed to this god for children. But generally, Heket was supposed to bring to the people of Egypt fruitfulness. So if you wanted to be fruitful in your business, you worshipped and sacrificed to the goddess Heket. If you wanted to be successful in life, if you wanted to leave a legacy, you would worship and make sacrifices to Heket. And God, again, in his mercy, here through the plague, is exposing the lie. He's mocking the frog god. It's folly. Hecate is a false god. There's no fruitfulness found here. Now, maybe we don't go and sacrifice to the god of Hecate today. But so many still worship at the altar of success. We seek life and freedom in the God of money, in the God of business, in the God of fame and fortune. And what happens is we sacrifice to that God our health and our families and our relationships. Thinking if we do that, it's going to give us what we want. But God is showing us, as he showed the Egyptians, that Heket was a lie. And remains a lie today. But we still get seduced by her. We buy into her lives. In my previous church, as you know, it was a mainly Hong Kong Chinese church. A lot of successful people there. And I was mentoring a young guy. He had, um, his parents had huge expectations for him. I know it's hard to believe for a mainly Hong Kong Chinese congregation. But huge amount of sarcasm in that comment. But these parents had a huge expectation on this guy. They sent him to St. George's. They sent him uh, to UBC. Uh, he uh, was going to become a lawyer. So they found him the best firm of lawyers. He was working 20 hours a day. Worshipping at the altar of success. And he cracked. Tried to kill himself. Depression. Family hid him away. He was an embarrassment. I met up with him recently. He's now working actually as a counsellor. Funnily enough, he's still working hard. He can't kick this work habit. 
stuff. Still working really hard, but now he's got a new perspective. And when I met him recently, he said to me, Trevor, it's a lie. It's a lie. Worshipping at the altar of success is a lie. I now know what is important. Whole new perspective. One of the most unusual books in the Bible is Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes isn't necessarily a fun little read. It's a bit depressing, to be honest. In fact, it's probably one of the most depressing books in the Bible. And yet it speaks so much truth. The basic thought in Ecclesiastes is that ultimately, if you're spending your life solely on your job, your success, your wealth, anything under the sun, then actually it's meaningless. It's futile. Jesus basically said the same thing in Mark's gospel. He said, what does it gain a man? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? You see, genuine fruitfulness, eternal fruitfulness, isn't to be found in the goddess Hecate. Isn't to be found in the god of wealth or the god of fame or the god of career. It's to be found only in surrender. Surrender to the living God through his son Jesus. It's only by doing that that we actually see what's most important in life. But here's something really Important to notice that's going on here. Look at Pharaoh's reaction to this plague. Did you notice that? Freaks out. Obviously doesn't like frogs. Freaks out. And he says, pray to the Lord, please pray to your Lord. Get rid of the frogs. Don't like the frogs anymore. When shall I get rid of the frogs? Tomorrow. Can you get rid of them for tomorrow? I don't like the frogs. Pray to you, God, I believe, I believe. And so Moses does just that. He prays to his God. And the frogs go. And Pharaoh, (coughs) (coughs) Pharaoh starts a church (laughs) for God, starts revival. When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Pharaoh's in trouble. He's desperate. He's afraid. He's at the end of his rope, so he cries out to God through Moses, help, help. And God responds, and Moses and Pharaoh says, phew. Okay, that's good. Let's go back to normal now. You know, it's interesting, but the very same thing happens to us today. I see it all the time. You know, the thing that wakes people up to their deep spiritual need 
is often tragedy, often difficulty, suffering, hardship. The Puritans back in the day called these things severe mercies. Every time you go through hardship, say, I'm just going through a severe mercy at the moment. It's God using situations to make us aware of our need, to make us uh, aware of the lie. Most of the time, we feel like we're kind of in control of our lives, don't we? We're managing things well. We're eating well. We're eating spinach because that's good for us. So we eat the spinach and we're working out pretty well. We're, on, we're doing the spin. You know, and we throw in a few blueberries on top of our oatmeal in the morning. And we just feel as though everything's fine in life. Then the illusion evaporates. We get sick. Or we get fired. Or our marriages fail. And there's heartbreak. And what happens? We become frightened and scared. We f- why? Because we feel out of control. Our belief system has been shaken. We thought we could handle things, but we can't. What should we do? What should we do? There's a virus going around the world. Oh my goodness, what do we do? Running around like a headless chicken, trying to sort things out. And then eventually, what do we do? At the very last resort, we get down on our knees and say, Jesus, Please, help. Ever been there? (laughs) It's how I came to know the Lord in the very first place. I got to that stage. And we cling to God. And what happens is, you notice, this is quite interesting, that we begin to become all-in kind of people. All of a sudden, we're in church every weekend. We're taking notes. Oh, Trevor, that was a great sermon. Let me tell you what God told me about that in, the, in your sermon. We go into recovery. We go find a life group. We're buying books and we're reading. The car radio, this is where, how you know it's a new Christian. The car radio is fixed on praise 106.5. That's when you know. (coughs) And then gradually what happens, the Lord in his mercy begins to restore us, begins to heal us, puts us back together, and we start coming out of that really tough season. And do you know what happens? We forget. We forget. We forget that it was leaning on Christ and the power of God in our lives that's brought us through this time. All of a sudden, we're back to the, well, actually, I'm the captain of my ship. You know, I beat cancer. Yeah. You know, I just tweaked how I interacted with my wife and our relationship is so much better. You know, I gave this up or I started working out a bit more. Do you know what? I I did it. I did it. Look at me. All of a sudden, it's no longer about what the Lord did, how the Lord carried you through. 
and our hearts grow hard again. We go back to our old, old ways. We don't go to church as often now. We don't pray as often now. We don't listen to Praise 106.5 anymore. Because we're the captains of our ship. Do you remember after 9-11, going back a few years, at Redeemer Church in New York, Tim Keller's old church, the attendance went from 2,800 to 5,400 in the weeks after 9-11. Churches everywhere in that city knew new faces. Lots of them. Before 9-11, only an estimated 5% of New York residents attended church. After 9-11, that figure tripled. And that carried on for six months. And then it began to dwindle slowly at first, but as time went by and as fear subsided, the numbers went back to normal. Why? Because people forgot. And they think, I don't need God anymore. I can deal with this now. Isn't that exactly what Pharaoh did? Frogs everywhere. He can't fix it. Hecate is a lie. She can't fix it. Moses, help. Pray to your God. Moses prays. The frogs are gone. As soon as the frogs are gone, Pharaoh's like, oh yeah, I'm captain of my own ship again. Then he forgets and he hardens his heart. I'm telling you, so many of us are guilty of that today. Think about when you've been through really tough times, when things got really difficult and hard. When you can't sort it out, you're on your knees. Help me, I'm yours. I fully surrender to you, Lord. The second there's any respite, we give ourselves credit for navigating that difficult season. It's sad. And I do believe it's something we have to be aware of. And I believe it's something that we have to repent of as well. Okay, we won't get to the flies this week. But the last plague we'll cover today is the gnats. Okay, those nasty mozzies. Okay, see that in verses 16 uh, to 19. Oh, it won't get to her yet. Egypt, here, is like Winnipeg in the summer. <laughs> but a hundred times worse. There's mozzies everywhere. People are spraying themselves, running for cover, eating mozzie sandwiches. Why a plague of gnats? Why are we told that they spring up from the dust of the earth? Well, guess what? It's an attack on another Egyptian god. This time the god Geb. Geb was the god of the earth. Geb would provide all the people needed from the earth, like plants and animals and food. And that's why God tells Moses and Aaron, strike the dust on the ground to produce the gnats. He's mocking the god Geb. The Egyptians would worship and sacrifice to Geb in order to give them comfort, to give them peace, which is something the Egyptians loved. If you ever thought 
about the ancient Egyptians, the wealthy ancient Egyptians, what image comes to mind? Well, they're always lounging around, aren't they? They're always lying around, they're eating and relaxing, and they had this sense of, we're the most powerful nation in the world. Look at us, and we pass the grapes. It's full of comfort and peace. And they thought that that came from Geb. But can I suggest that there's nothing that can destroy comfort and peace more than mosquitoes? Think about it. Picture yourself in the great outdoors of our province. Okay, you're sitting by the lake in one of the provincial parks, maybe relaxing, you've got a beer and some chips, everything is so right with the world, and then, and you hear it before you see it. And then another, and then another. And all you're doing is sweating them away. <coughs> this happened two nights ago. I don't know why they're about so, so soon. Linda woke me up in the middle of the night. And she said, did you hear that? I said, hear what? I didn't hear a thing. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. She said, no, did you hear that? <clears throat> I said, what? It's a mosquito. And as soon as she says that, I know what the next hour of my life is going to look like. Linda becomes a woman possessed. She has to. She turns on all the lights. She has to find the mosquito. No one else in the house can sleep until Linda has found and destroyed this mosquito. And so she grabs the book next to her bed, which is generally the Bible. So she has the Word of God, and she's going around the bedroom, slamming down and slamming down and... In the name of Jesus, I kill you. <laughs> Same thing is happening here in Egypt. Their peace has been shattered. They're running around trying to swat the little buggers. And what God is revealing here to the Egyptians is that no amount of wealth or might can bring comfort and true peace. Don't go to the God of Geb. Here's what we know about the world in which we live today. For all of our advancements, for all of our time-saving inventions, for all of our air conditioning, for all of our tempopedic beds, our NASA-created pillows, our chiropractors, our massages, we're more sleepless than we've ever been. We're far more stressed than we've ever been more anxious than we've ever been. We're a people who are unsettled and nervous and more medicated than at any other time in history. And God, in his mercy, through the plagues of gnats, is exposing the lie that Geb or ourselves can give the comfort we need at our deepest level. No mount no amount of vacationing and money and stuff will bring the comfort and peace our souls are hungry for. 
to life. We believe in that. I read an article recently about Tom Brady. Everyone knows Tom Brady. Uh, football player down south. He was, he was talking about winning another Super Bowl. I don't know how many he's won now. Is it four or five? I don't know. And he says, after one Super Bowl, he's sitting on the bed in his hotel room and he's restless. And the thought that kept coming back into his mind was, is this it? Is this it? Now, hang on a minute. Tom Brady. He's just won another Super Bowl. His Victoria's Secret supermodel wife is in the bathroom ready to come to bed. He's worth $100 million. He can go anywhere he wants. He can have access to everything he wants. And he's sitting on his bed feeling restless and saying, is this it? Friends, we've bought into a lie. I guess most of us don't have little idols of Happy or Hecate or Geb in our bedroom. If you do, then I need to speak to you. <laughs> but I guess we don't, and we don't have them to we burn incense to and sacrifice to, but many of us still bow down to the idea that we can find purpose and fruitfulness and contentment in ourselves and the gods we create. It's a lie. It's a lie. You see, real purpose, real peace, real comfort, real joy, real life is found only in full surrender to Jesus Christ. And that full surrender is a day at a time, a moment at a time, an hour at a time, an event at a time, a decision at a time. And as we work towards full obedience to God in Christ, the scriptures tell us then we become conformed to the image of Christ and we find the comfort of God deep in our souls. That's Last Wednesday was the beginning of Lent. Lent is a time when we examine ourselves before God. We examine our hearts before God. In order to experience the fullness of joy that comes at Easter, there are times when we need to repent of what's in our hearts now. That's what Lent is all about. And I just think this morning there are some of us that need to repent. That we have put other gods before our God. We have put our trust in other things and not fully surrendered Jesus. I think there are some of us that 
yeah, we've, we've surrendered and given our all to Christ in the past because, you know, we needed God then. But now we don't need him. We're doing very well, thank you, by ourselves. And that's blasphemous. And we need to repent of that. Father, I'm sorry that I pay lip service to you so often. I say with my lips that I'm following you and that I'm trusting you, and yet I bow down and worship to other gods. Father, I know how much that breaks your heart. Maybe I don't know how much it breaks your heart. Maybe that's the problem. Lord, would you forgive me? Would you help me to turn once again to you, to give my all to you? Lord, I don't want to trust in these things that don't bring me anything but pain in the end. I want to come to you. I want to see you. I want to experience all of you in my life. Father, would you help me do that? Would you, by your Holy Spirit, help me to do that? Thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that your word never changes, that your word is so relevant to us today. Father, can we take it to heart? Help us this week to be the people you want us to be. Surrendered to you. Thank you.